Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, October 10th. This is your Chapo. Um, it's Felix and I today. I apologize for the delayed episode, but obviously the uh, events that transpired over the weekend and are now ongoing in Palestine, I think, um, uh, demanded a serious episode to discuss um, what, you know, what we've all been seeing happen over the last, like over the weekend and what is currently happening now. So um, joining us to talk about um, what's happening in Palestine right now is a journalist we've spoken to before. Uh, it's Mohammed Al-Safin with AJ+. Mohammed, thank you for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So yeah, like obviously the news has been completely taken over by what, what is going on right now in the Gaza Strip and Palestine. Um, sometime like over the weekend, uh, Hamas launched a coordinated raid into Israeli territory. And uh, since then, like there's basically been, we've seen a massive escalation of the ongoing war on Palestine. So, I mean, I guess I just want to begin with just discussing what happened over the weekend and like what we know about what's going on right now. So, Mohammed, could you speak to the, the operation launched by Hamas? Like, what did they do? How did it happen? Mm. And, and what is the state of play in mm. Gaza and the West Bank right now? Okay, so um, Friday night around 12, just before midnight Eastern time, would have been just after dawn in Palestine. Um, getting in bed, checking my phone, and I'm seeing a lot on my feed of people in Gaza tweeting that something big has just happened. Uh, most of them seem terrified, uh, talking about massive explosions. Uh, a lot of people say it feels like the earth is just turned upside down. Um, my initial thought, my heart, my heart dropped. I have family in Gaza. My initial thought was that uh, another massive Israeli surprise attack had been launched on the Gaza Strip. Um, however, the next few minutes, it was clear that that hadn't happened. What had happened instead was thousands of rockets seemed to have been going up from Gaza into Israel. Uh, and this was unprecedented, not only because of the scale of the attack, but also because of the surprise nature of the attack. Uh, in the past, surprise attacks, especially at scale, have kind of been exclusively kind of performed by Israel. Um, and my, uh, my, my thought was that this is only happening because Israel must have assassinated someone very senior in uh, Palestinian resistance groups. And so this was kind of like a, uh, a response to that. Um, within about an hour, so I was seeing things that genuinely shocked me. Um, and that was uh, footage taken by Israelis inside the towns near Gaza of what appeared to be Hamas fighters driving into these towns, walking into these towns, uh, fully armed and essentially taking over. And this is unprecedented. This was unprecedented in the entire history of this conflict. Um, at first, I genuinely did not believe it. Uh, this had never happened before. Um, but more and more footage seemed to be coming from different sources, confirming that that was indeed happening. Um, it's a huge shock because, for those who don't know, Gaza has been under a hermetically sealed blockade for 16 years, 17 years. Nobody can go in and out without, you know, um, a tough to obtain permit from the Israelis. The vast majority of Gazans have never been out, allowed out. Um, and then to see dozens and hundreds of heavily armed men strolling through Israeli streets across the, the boundary line was shocking, especially since the Israelis had spent billions of dollars building a what they called one of the most sophisticated high-tech fences, separating them from, from Gazans, keeping Gazans locked in. Um, over time, it, had tra it transpired that what happened was uh, Hamas launched, under that barrage of rockets, launched a surprise attack on all the Israeli military posts and bases surrounding Gaza, every single one. Um, again, the thing that shocked me was just how completely they managed to dismantle the uh, Israeli military presence during that time. Um, footage released by Hamas shows that in every uh, base that they attacked, uh, they were able to get through the fences, break through, and kill or arrest all the Israeli soldiers in those bases. Um, and then footage started appearing, showing Israelis being pulled into the Gaza Strip. Again, unprecedented, right? Um, taking Israeli hostages has been a goal of Hamas for decades. Uh, they want, they've been wanting to do that to exchange them for uh, Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Um, and uh, they've only managed to get five in the last 20 years or so. Five Israelis... Uh, two of them believed to be killed in action, 
during previous invasions into Gaza. Um, and the Israelis had essentially refused to uh, countenance a, a prisoner swap, deciding that keeping those Israelis in Gaza was not worth the price paying of releasing the Palestinian prisoners on the other side. Um, <clears throat> as time went on during the day, it became clearer and clearer what was happening. Um, after breaking through the defenses and running, overrunning the Israeli military bases and posts around Gaza, Hamas fighters had gone into uh, the kibbutzes and the towns around Gaza. Um, they were going door to door, entering people's homes in cases uh, and uh, taking more, more hostages. Uh, it also became clear that eventually hundreds of Israelis were killed in this attack. Again, number is absolutely unprecedented in the entire history of this conflict. Uh, the current uh, estimate is now over a thousand dead Israelis. Within hours, the Israeli response began with massive bombardment of the Gaza Strip. Um, within the first day, I think 200 Palestinians were killed. That number has now reached over 800. We're on day four. Um, and what is terrifying is that uh, anyone who could potentially put any kind of pressure to uh, pull back from the brink here uh, that is, the U.S. administration, Western governments that support Israel diplomatically and militarily have instead given full-throated support to Israel's stated intention of obliterating the Gaza Strip. Uh, the Israeli uh, defense minister has ordered all food, water, electricity, and fuel to be cut off from the two million people stuck inside Gaza. Uh, described uh, And described them with, I think it's it's not... Uh, an exaggeration to call it um, genocidal language. He said, we are dealing with human beasts. Um, and uh, entire neighborhoods in Gaza have now been wiped out. Uh, what we have so far is, um, there are, what we know is that the, uh, the Hamas fighters managed to stay inside Israeli territory for at least three days. Some of them reaching as far as uh, Rahat in the Negev Desert which is about 50 kilometers east of Gaza. And uh, over the last few days, despite the, the bombardment, Hamas says its fighters have made repeated raids onto military bases around the Gaza Strip. So it's a very fluid situation on the ground, um, but it's also, from a humanitarian point of view, uh, absolutely horrifying. A lot of people have been killed, and it seems like a lot more will die before this gets anywhere close to being resolved. Yeah, we, we've seen... Some familiar tactics from Israel, specifically with uh, airstrikes. Um, it's not new for them to necessarily hit high rises and densely populated civilian zones, but there seems to be a special attention paid to striking ambulances specifically this time, which is, again, something they've done before. But it really seems like they're going all out on high rises, ambulances and telecoms just yeah. In the midst of cutting off all supplies and water and everything and you would need even normally, uh, they're suffocating everyone. Medicine as well. Medicine is cut off, you know, already to hospitals that lack basic supplies thanks to sanctions and the blockade. Yeah, I, I mean, um, what we're seeing now, and we can talk maybe later on about strategic outcome of, of all this. What we're seeing now is... Nothing we haven't seen before from the Israelis, um, but it has been increased in terms of scale. Um, and I think uh, people in Gaza, uh, journalists, citizens, family members who are still alive and are able to actually communicate with the outside world. And, and those numbers are dwindling as electricity runs out and communications are being knocked out, are saying that despite the utter horrors of previous rounds of Israeli bombardment, they haven't seen anything like this before. Uh, the Israelis themselves in the past would uh, always, you know, take great care, especially when speaking to a Western audience to say that they are, you know, selectively targeting Hamas targets um, and that any civilians killed uh, are collateral damage that they don't intend to target. Um, I think Israeli military officials and political officials right now or have dispensed with even the pretense with of that now. Um, they're talking about causing as much destruction as possible. Um, and I think uh, in addition to kind of the the factor of revenge here for the you know the hundreds of Israelis killed, there's also a factor of trying to return the, the to to build back the deterrence of the Israeli army, which you know in this attack by Hamas was completely embarrassed. 
let's talk a little bit about that. Um, the deterrence factor of the Israeli military and the previous uh, aura of invincibility that they may have had. Um, I myself, and I've seen other people say this, that, you know, I don't think we're really going to know the full extent of their failures and why they happened for a few years, as is the case with, you know, most conflicts. But if I had to pick one thing for sure right now, I probably would say that um, in the Iron Dome era, we've seen an acceleration of open genocidal policies and language on the part of Israelis and uh, increased cowardliness by Western politicians and what is and isn't acceptable. Um, I think that the Iron Dome genuinely made them think that they were untouchable. And I think even if you do have world-class signals interception and everything and the best technology money can buy, thinking you're invincible can really set you back. But um, how do you account for just how unprecedented the scale of uh, Hamas's operation is? I mean, we've we've really never seen this before. I just no one expected this. Not at all. Uh, least of all the Israelis. Um, I think it's right that you point out that kind of the Iron Dome era has. Uh, I, I think I think Israeli military establishment has gotten complacent. Uh, the rockets that are fired out of Gaza. Um, in in rounds of conflict like this, tend to you know number in their hundreds and thousands, but the the impact is relatively small compared to the, their number. Um, even if the they're able to you know uh, damage buildings uh, and property a lot more than they were in the past, the number of Israelis killed by these rockets is still very minimal. I think the Israeli establishment is willing to pay that price. Um, I think. Um, the other factor is the, as you said, Israel kind of seems to have believed its own. It's it, it, there's there's definitely a, a a factor of hubris here. The Israelis are always confident that they know exactly what's going on in the Gaza Strip. It is one of the most heavily surveilled places on Earth, a tiny strip of land where Israel knows everything or thought it knew everything that was happening. And uh, you know, in 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 2014, the last time there was a major war. Um, Hamas was able to um, use underground tunnels to conduct quick fire raids on, you know, some of the surrounding military bases, uh, you know, and those were seen as as game changers, right? Um, even though many of those operations lasted only a few minutes or hours, what we've seen here is something far, far, far exceeding that scale. Um, I think for years the Israelis felt that any threat was going to come from the tunnels, and instead, what we saw was Hamas fighters literally walking through the fence or flying over it in paragliders, driving through it um, in broad daylight, not even at night. Um, and uh, and I think um, if, if you allow me to quote a friend of the show, um, Seamus Malik Afzali, he wrote something really, really interesting on the day of the attack. Um, he wrote, there is a fundamental flaw in the perception of Western powers. And I think we can group Israel in this. There's a fundamental flaw in the perception of Western powers towards the Middle East in general and Arabs in particular, that because the groups fighting with Israel or the United States are irregular, bereft of highly professional uniforms and dedicated gigantic military headquarters, that they do not have the same ability to strategize and to confront the forces that are occupying their countries. Um, but Hamas has military strategists of its own ones that understand the asymmetric situation they're dealing with, and ones that understand what the actual capabilities of Israel are versus what their perception is. Um, and I think that sums it up right there. I think the Israelis, their allies, uh, were very confident that you know this enemy will is, is a lot weaker than it turns out to be. While at the same time, the other side was built, has been building up its capabilities and its strategies and its fighting power for, for years. Yeah, we'll um, we'll link to Shimas' piece in the uh, episode description. It's really great and elucidates a lot of uh, points and clarifies a lot of things that need clarifying. Uh, but I, I I think like an aspect of that, I I think you're absolutely right that like over overestimation underestimation of uh, mirroring capabilities is a huge part of it. Um, it also seems like you know, this is a military that has been purposed entirely for internal security and humiliation and hitting 
the softest of soft targets. And when actually pressed, they seem to crumble. I mean, this is kind of what people said in Lebanon 16 years ago, but no one really expected it in Palestine. But yeah, and I I think to tie that, Felix, to tie that in as well to some of the political developments in Israel, um, it, it seems like a lot of the military installations around Gaza were staffed at minimum levels because a lot of uh, soldiers and a lot of uh, assets were moved into the West Bank, where uh, you know the current Israeli government uh, has designs on annexing the West Bank, uh, crushing Palestinians over there, um, and kind of uh, you have you have genocidal fascist ministers and people like Benikvir and uh, uh, Bezalel Smotrich who have these messianic views of of you know taking over the West Bank um, and. Their frequent provocations and incitement to pogroms have led to a very, very uh, unstable situation over there, far more violent than it's been in years. And I think the Israelis uh, felt that Gaza, uh, ironically, was actually a safer uh, front for the time being. Mohammed, I wanted to, to go back to the, um, the unprecedented nature of this attack and the Hamas's military operation. Um, you mentioned that the like the high tech security fence that cordons off Gaza from the from Israel proper and certainly the West Bank. It's not just a security fence. There's a perimeter that extends quite mm-hmm. a bit a ways out. That if you approach, you will be shot. How did Hamas? How were they able to breach that security perimeter so thoroughly and so swiftly in one fell swoop? Like, how were they able to get close enough to get through these fences? I think there's a couple of, there's a couple of, of reasons. One is uh, using drones, what they, what they seem to have done, and they, they've published footage of this, is they've used loitering drones to drop bombs uh, on top of the watchtowers, the remote operated machine guns, uh, and the communications towers that, uh, that run communications and power for this fence and perimeter. Uh, the second thing that they seem to have done is actually the first target was the Erez, uh military base, which is on the north side of Gaza. It's the only way in and out for people uh, to travel between Gaza and Israel. And it's uh, heavily staffed with uh, Israeli intelligence operatives. Um, the last time I was there, I was a child, but Erez is a very intimidating fortress um, with you know 16 meter high concrete walls, uh, double doors, uh, you hardly ever see Israeli soldiers. They speak to you through speakers. You go through concrete corridors and tunnels uh, separated from anyone else. It's it's very, very isolating. And it's built, like, like I said, like a fortress. But they seem to attack that first. And that seems to have been a node that was critical in kind of the overall perimeter around, around Gaza. Uh, they attacked that. They uh, completely overran it and took several, uh, they killed many soldiers in there, took several intelligence officers hostage into Gaza um, before moving forward. I think the other thing is the Israelis were so confident that their defenses were impenetrable that a lot of the the cameras, the security systems looked inwards into Gaza and not necessarily behind the perimeter. So once they were able to breach that, and they breached it, I think, in more than 20, 20 places up and down the Gaza Strip, um, it took a long time for the uh, the Israeli army to realize that a major incursion had took, taken place. Yeah, I I was very shocked on the day of how long it was out of uh, I- Israeli military control. It took yeah. them a very long time to establish anything there. Yeah, it took them until I think the the next day before they began to reclaim some areas, and then it, it was into. Um, I think in late into Sunday before most areas were back under control. And again, I think part of that goes back to the fact that the majority of Israeli uh, army assets in the area were taken out in the first minutes of this raid. Uh, so it took a long time to replenish that and get troops down there. Uh, and there was a lot of, and because so much of the security apparatus and intelligence apparatus was taken down as well, it took a long time for the Israelis to kind of understand exactly what was happening on the ground. But that was in the initial hours of this raid. Where are things now? Like, I mean, the Hamas forces like took and like seized territory for a little bit, but have they receded back to within the Gaza Strip, or are there still ongoing, um, like you know, holding of territory outside of the Gaza security perimeter? So it seems that any territory that was held has been recovered by the Israelis. Um, it's unclear how many Hamas fighters uh, died and how many uh, were able to retreat. 
Uh, we know many of them did because they came back with hostages and they came back with Israeli military assets, um, you know, vehicles, etc. Um, but how many actually continued on and fought, you know, fought to the death is, is unclear at the moment. Um, Hamas has said even today that they uh, they have sent uh, more fighters to infiltrate some of the bases around Gaza. Um but those seem to be quick raids. Um, but it's clear that uh, Israel still doesn't have full control on the ground. Either that or the damage done to the security perimeter is so extensive that they haven't been able to uh, repair that while the fighting is ongoing. That's allowed uh, fighters to continue going across. I want to talk in, in a little bit. I want to talk about essentially what's to come or what we can expect, um, like as, on the ongoing escalation of this conflict. But I want to get back to what you said about how uh, this this essentially caught everyone by surprise. And it caught me by surprise, but I think it particularly caught people for whom the history of this conflict begin and end any time an Israeli is killed. I think it really shocked and horrified them. But here's my question. How shocked should anyone be by what, what, what just happened? Uh, it, it's understandable that you're shocked because of the number of Israelis killed. Because, again, that is completely unprecedented. Um, even even as the, the Palestinian death toll has risen to over 800, that's still lower than the Israeli death toll. And that has never happened, ever. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the last major escalation and war between Gaza and Israel led to 2,500 Palestinians killed, including 500 children. On the other side, three Israeli civilians were killed, as well as 64 soldiers. And that was considered one of the, uh, let's say, least lopsided uh, ratios in the history of this conflict. So the Israeli death toll is exponentially more massive than it ever has been before. So in terms of death toll, that is absolutely shocking. Um, and we know that um, it's unclear exactly, you know, what happened once the, the fighters were able to overtake the, the Israeli military bases and go into the kibbutzim and the villages around and the towns around Gaza. Um, it's been very hard to get uh, independent media verification or human verification from human rights organizations. Um, there's a lot of very thinly sourced information out there of atrocities that have been committed or supposedly have been committed. We don't know any of that yet. Um, that hasn't stopped the general media from going with it in a lot of places. But this is, uh, it's clearly a very fluid situation in terms of, you know, the actuality of what happened. We do know that the numbers are huge. Um, but in terms of, you know, is this something that could have been predicted? Yes. And it should have been predicted. It should have been something that everyone uh, knew what was happen would happen. And I think going back to earlier when we were talking about the Israelis and their allies and the hubris they have um, over, you know, the total control they have over Palestinian life, um, you know, they felt that they could manage this conflict, that they could keep two million people in Gaza uh, caged indefinitely, and that they would be able to suffer very little repercussions for that. Um I think, uh, you know, there's been warnings by Hamas, by analysts, by human rights advocates, by the UN, that the situation was untenable and would likely result in an explosion. But I think um, considering how, mu how much this differs from previous rounds of violence, um, nobody really saw the scale of this happening. But it, strategically, it does fundamentally change a lot of things, I think, down the line. Yeah, it appears that like for at least last 30 years, the Israeli calculus and the calculus of their Western supporters has been that they can just keep up the occupation indefinitely and at a shockingly low cost. Yeah. And, you know, that may have been true years ago, but it certainly is not now. Yeah. I mean, Israeli Israeli officials have said in the past that, look, our policy in Gaza is to maintain the siege. And if the price of that is that, you know, every every other year there's a there's a slight flare up in violence and, and the Palestinians uh, kill a couple dozen Israelis, then that's a price we're willing to pay. Uh, and this is why fundamentally this changes things, because we're talking over a thousand Israeli dead. That never factored into any Israeli uh, calculation. Yeah. And uh, going going back a little bit to could this have been predicted? Yes. I mean, like, you know, obviously like this is, you can only push people so far for one thing, but like this specific attack, we are seeing that Egyptian intelligence specifically warned uh, Israel and Netanyahu specifically about this. And I don't, 
I don't really buy into the conspiracy theory that I've seen people push around that um, you see it less now, but you saw it the day of that, yeah. like they deliberate everything that happened. Israel deliberately let it happen so they could, uh, you know, reify their control and uh, bomb Gaza, which yeah. is, you know, we they've never needed justification to do that before. I don't know why this time would be different, but also I just, I, could not ever believe that they would willingly give up that many hostages. No, that is just a gigantic embarrassment. But I think it really just may come down to pomposity. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it is. I mean, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself a bit by saying again and again, how unprecedented it was, but the fact that it was so unprecedented is what makes this, you know, so notable because the Israelis for decades have been able to deal with uh, Gaza and the Palestinians in general um, very comfortably, right? I mean, the main focus of, if you go back to, say, the 90s, um, the focus on Israel and Palestine was on getting some kind of peace deal that would end the conflict. Um, in recent years, um, especially from you know late Obama into Trump and now the Biden administration, the focus has been on managing the conflict, uh, reducing any blowback from the Palestinian issue and just normalizing and integrating Israel into the Middle East with the other U.S. allies in the region. Um, and I think the Biden administration, um, you know, Jonathan Geyer at uh, Vox has done a great job of kind of collating all the statements and speeches made by Biden's uh, uh, Middle East team, by his uh, national security team, um, by his State Department over the last year or so. Uh, talking about their plans for the Middle East or their vision for the Middle East. And Gaza and the Palestinians are very rarely mentioned. What's talked about a lot is the normalization of ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, the integration of these two U.S. allies together in some kind of official military alliance, uh, You know, looking forward to a different Middle East where everyone can safely ignore the Palestinians. Uh, clearly, this blows all of that up. Mohammed, what do you I mean, like, what do you make of the strategic analysis that part of the part of the um, uh, planning behind this attack was to scuttle uh, uh, negotiations or deals, particularly between Israel and Saudi Arabia, that this now makes that much more difficult for Saudi Arabia and a broader kind of regional peace deal that would, you know, uh, have peace in the Middle East. And just as you said, at the uh, at the price of everybody just ignoring Palestine. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's tough to see where this goes. I think the uh, both. Uh, from the Israeli side and the Saudi side, as well as the Americans, as they're kind of, you know, everyone wants this deal to happen still. Um, so it, how this plays out will delineate uh, when it does happen. Um, I still, I don't think that this is going to be just kind of like four days in. I don't think what we've seen is enough to completely take this deal off the table. Um, but I think it does uh, change the, uh, the optics a lot. Um, but beyond that, to answer your initial question, um, I don't think this was planned necessarily with that in mind. I think this was more of a byproduct result um, because I think people genuinely don't understand how horrific the conditions in Gaza are. And I think they also uh, frequently remove the context of 56 years of occupation, 78 years of displacement that people in Palestine uh, are dealing with. Yeah. And, you know, like deal or no deal, whether the Abraham Accords happened or not, or whether Saudi Arabia and Israel end up normalizing relations or they don't, that suffering has been, for the most part, you know, completely ignored mm -hmm. after King Faisal. He was probably the last Gulf monarch to really offer anything besides like uh, monthly statements. And even he really couldn't you know, long before the two-state solution died, even he couldn't make that happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, with with the Saudis, and you know, I'm not a I'm not an expert on on, on Saudis, and I think under uh, MBS uh, things are very fluid. But it's clear that you know he he sees um, Israel as a uh, a very valuable military and intelligence ally and a bulwark against Iran. It'll be interesting to see how many nations or how many countries still see Israel's kind of intelligence apparatus as this vaunted apparatus after their massive failure in this attack, though. I think I think that's sort of an underrated thing here. Like previously, the common knowledge with uh, 
Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, it's been acknowledged that they have unofficial communications and have coordinated on a few things, even though relations are not normalized. But the common knowledge was that Israel was so competent and organized that, like, if shit really hit the fan, they would be this amazing bulwark against Iran. And yeah, yeah you just cannot count on that anymore. Yeah, and I think that that reputation um, has served the Israelis very well, not just with the Saudis, with the Emiratis as well, but even with some of the countries that deal with Israel under the table while, you know, refusing to publicly acknowledge that, whether it's in the Gulf or elsewhere. Um but also in places like India, which is becoming one of Israel's strongest allies under Modi, you know this this aura of Israeli military invincibility and uh, and intelligence uh, prowess is going to take a bit of a hit after this. Yeah, Mohammed. Uh, so, like as you said, early days of this conflict, but like pregnant is the po- like you know in the in, contained with it is is the possibility of a much larger regional conflict should things get further out of hand. I mean, we have already seen the Israeli mil- Israeli military s- announce their intentions to do some kind of land invasion of Gaza, and I've also seen news reports that they have they have hit targets in southern Lebanon, which would can, which would you know uh, mean that the possibility of Hezbollah entering this conflict. What do you and then also many many attempts in the Western media to link Iran to Hamas as like funding this this military raid. What, I mean, what, what, do we, what do you think about the possibility of Israel, a land invasion of Gaza, and then what that could possibly mean for, for instance, Hezbollah getting involved in this conflict? So I think, uh, I think we should separate the two um, because a land invasion doesn't necessarily mean a reoccupation. In previous rounds of fighting, Israel has attempted land invasions, just hold on territory. I think it's more of, a, of an issue of, um, you know, uh, look, the Israelis never, as, as much as some of their more fascist uh, loudmouths on the right call for it, the Israelis have no intention of ever reoccupying Gaza, right? Uh, the reason that they have 2 million people caged in a, uh, in that place is because they don't want to deal with those 2 million people. Um, and they don't, and so they have no interest in going back in. Um, it's important to, to always contextualize the reason they left as well in 2005. They were forced out by the Palestinian resistance in Gaza, which at the time was a lot smaller and a lot less sophisticated than it is now. So in my mind, any ground invasion would be temporary. It would be more about, you know, scorched earth tactics and limited areas, maybe in the northeast, uh, in the north and the east of Gaza, where it's uh, it's less populated. Um, <clears throat> as to, you know, the potential chance of a broader regional war, um, one thing we know for sure is that uh, the alliance between Hamas and Hezbollah has gotten a lot stronger over the last few years. Um, there's a lot of coordination. A lot of uh, Hamas leaders have uh, ended up uh, now in Beirut over the last couple of years. And when I say in Beirut, that means obviously under the protection of Hezbollah. Um, it's not just that the Israelis have shelled southern Lebanon. Um, Hezbollah has attacked I think a military outpost in the north of Israel. Israel also yeah. on yeah, I was going to say Israel has also uh, killed or, or Hezbollah has, has announced that uh, three of its fighters were killed in uh, in clashes on in in the uh, the last couple of days. Uh, while the Israelis have admitted that three of their soldiers were killed also. So I think what's happening up there is there is a uh, there is a very cagey kind of tit for tat between Hezbollah and Israel. I think. Hezbollah is trying to send messages that it could get involved uh, without necessarily putting its foot all the way in. And I think the biggest um, the biggest impediment to Hezbollah getting involved isn't actually any kind of desire on their part or any uh, any military weakness. But I think uh, it's Lebanon. Lebanon is in a state of collapse as a country. And I think uh, they know that further Israeli bombardment of Lebanon would be uh, would be very hard to stomach for a lot of Lebanese. So I think that's the one thing that's probably stopping Hezbollah from getting involved. So like, I mean, obviously, like sitting here in uh, America, just receiving, you know, n- news of this through your television or the Internet, it, like it, it's, it's largely dictated by the Western press and like, you know, the, the country, the EU governments and the American uh, state. Have you seen over the last like this last week or so, I mean, have you seen any indication that the Western media narrative is shifting ever so slightly in terms of what it is willing to acknowledge 
about the occupation and about decades of unchecked military aggression against the Palestinian people. I mean, is there, do you see any cracks in the facade of the media sort of blockade and, and sort of enforced cone of silence about what the occupation is or what Gaza actually is? No, sadly, I think, uh, I think actually, um, the unprecedented Israeli death toll has, has given a lot of, um, a lot of Western media kind of carte blanche to go the other side. It feels a lot to me like the days after nine 11. Absolutely. Any, Absolutely. It's, it's been, any, sick, it's been sickening to me to, to, to feel that yeah. way again. Any, any critical thought, any, any attempt to uh, place things in their proper context has met with open hostility and derision. Um, I think in previous rounds, there might've been a slight shift, um, but definitely not, 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 not this time. I think the reason that there was a shift in the past was because uh, for the most part, the death toll was so lopsided. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm sad to say this. I think a lot of people in the West are very comfortable seeing Palestinian dead or dead Palestinians. Um, they're very comfortable seeing uh, dead brown people. I think for a lot of them, that is the natural state of affairs. And, um, and, you know, you can always sympathize with a lot with dead people, but as long as they're not, uh, as long as they're docile, as long as they haven't harmed the people who look more like you, um, then it's safe to, to kind of start criticizing ever so tepidly. We see it in the conventions of headlines where like Israelis are killed, Palestinians die. Like right. the Palestinians, they get like it's a fucking natural disaster or something. Like it was a flood that killed. And then like what well, you said that what that does is it inculcates the sense of this is the natural order of things. Palestinians, yep. they just die. They're not like the active victims of specific acts of violence carried out against them. Yeah, and I, I think I think one thing that uh, Westerners in general, not just Americans, don't will never understand is uh, the horror of being uh, of living under airstrikes or dying under airstrikes, right? Which is kind of the modus operandi of um, the Israeli and American militaries, especially. You're dropping tons of explosives on top of people's heads in their buildings, in their apartment buildings, their schools, their offices, their markets. You're killing dozens and dozens of people. The pilots who drop them, you know, they get to go home without a speck of dust on them. Um, and... Uh, for a, for a lot of Westerners, that that is clean warfare, right? They don't look they don't look at the impact on the ground. Um, whereas a fighter with an AK forty seven going into a community and and shooting people that feels a lot more visceral and horrific. Um, and uh, you know, I think a lot of Western journalists um, identify on a human level with Israelis in a way that they never could with Palestinians, right? Um, regardless of the fact that that Israel is an apartheid st state, regardless of the fact that Israel has committed massacres and ethnic cleansing frequently throughout its history, a lot of Westerners in the media and the political class still see Israelis as people they can make a human connection with or see them as one of us. I mean, and Muhammad, that's something I they could. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's something that they could never kind of extend to Palestinians. I've been sort of shocked because I've, from what I've seen from Western politicians and American politicians, and I think they're going a step further, and I'm thinking specifically about Richie Torres's comment that this was like, oh, this was 10 times worse than 9-11 for Israel, which is in a way saying that Israeli lives are actually worth more than American lives when they're killed by terrorists. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, Murtaza Hussein of The Intercept uh, pointed out that for someone like, uh, say, Josh Hawley, you know, he's been cast as this anti-war Republican who, because <laughs> he's been frequently calling for an end to aid to Ukraine. I mean, his thing was, let's actually take that aid to Ukraine and give it to Israel. And and Murtaza's, Murtaza's point was that um, this sort of kind of a displaced nationalism um, for a lot of American politicians, it's it's gauche and it's difficult to express um, like a a, a, a hyper-American nationalism. And so for a lot of them, they place it on Israel and a lot yeah, of them absolutely. act like, and a lot of them act like Israeli deaths, um, the Israeli state. Um, that is something that they identify and value more than American lives in the American state. Um, just the, the fact that, for example, the, um, the Biden administration, I mean, Antony Blinken, secretary of state, deleting tweets, calling for a ceasefire and instead <laughs> replacing them with tweets saying, you know, we'll, we'll give Israel whatever it wants to do, whatever it wants. At the time when the Israeli government is using explicitly genocidal language, 
yeah, it's uh, it's scary. Yeah, I think I think the nine immediately after nine eleven comparison is incredibly apt. I, I, I mean, it's sort of been swept under the rug in Western coverage how openly genocidal the language from Israel has been mm. in recent years. I'm, um, just real quick, it, it the just, New York the New York Times excised the comment by the uh, member of the Israeli government that said, "This is what we're going to do to Gaza. They're animals." The New York yeah, Times the defense excised, minister. The yeah, defense minister, yeah. the New York Times, excised his comment comparing Palestinians to animals. Yeah, I mean, in what other context would someone who has F-16s, tanks, artillery under his control saying something like that? In what other context would that be excised? It's it's shocking. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Hawley and uh, the fact that he wants to take all the money we're giving to Ukraine and give it to Israel. I mean, ha- like... Has it gone unnoticed, the, the, the juxtaposition between the rights of Ukrainians to resist military aggression through violence and Palestinians? Like, I mean, that, has that gone that unnoticed in the world or in the media? I mean, you know, at AJ Plus, we actually, one of the things we, we did um, early in the days of the, of the Russia-Ukraine war was publish um, kind of a comparison, a side-by-side comparison of um, how U.S. media and U.S. politicians talked about Ukrainian resistance to Russian occupation versus how they talked about Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation, and this was this was you know a year ago. We're not talking about even this current round of 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 of, of fighting. Um, you know, I, I think Ukrainian as a Palestinian, I think Ukrainians have a right to fight people who are trying to occupy their country. What's crazy to me is that the analogy, rather than being Ukrainians and Palestinians on one side of the analogy, it's been flipped around. You know, you have CNN reporters saying, tweeting about how uh, the Palestinians are the Russians to the Israeli Ukrainians. Um, it's absolutely wild. Um, there's just a complete, just complete kind of irrationality in in how this is being cast. Um, but even in things like you know, last week you guys were talking about the. SS Waffen guy who got around who got a standing ovation in the Canadian yeah. Parliament, right? No, no, um, it was okay for then, him to volunteer for the Waffen SS to resist the military invasion of his country. That's okay. Yeah, he, yeah. So you know, he was allowed to be a Nazi, but then the Canadian government will come out a week later and 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 uh, condemn Palestinians fighting occupation of their land. Mohammed, I, I guess the other thing I noticed just in what little I've tried to you know avoid of the Western media in this, I, I did notice a number of interviews that took place on cable news with members of Palestinian civil society. And I guess it was surprising mm. to me that, that they got past the bookers at all. But mm. in all of these interviews, like the, the host uh, essentially like can't even really push back against what they're saying. But what they will say is, even if everything you say is true, Hasn't what's happened now, uh, don't you condemn Hamas, but hasn't what's happened now, isn't that going to just only increase the violence and and death toll for innocent Palestinians? Isn't isn't this going to make life so much harder for people who are in the West Bank or Gaza Strip? I mean, like, uh, uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think you see that in the media and you see it among some, some, you know, regular folks as well. And I think for them, that might come from, you know, a place of genuine, genuine horror and fear for what might happen to the Palestinians. But I think for a lot of people who make that, who ask that question or make that demand, it's pretty insidious. Won't this make things worse for the Palestinian people? I don't think anyone who asks that question could survive a day in Gaza. I don't think they comprehend the horror of living life in a human warehouse. Um, You know, borders closed, surveilled surveilled day and light from the sky. Um, A lot of people don't know this, but Gaza's skies for more than 20 years have been... um, the sound of Gaza sky is this loud buzzing, which has been the sound of Israeli drones that have been surveilling the Gaza skies and firing missiles down from the sky for more than 20 years. You know, what does that do to your psyche when you know death is imminent at any moment? You know, um, People don't understand just how what that this siege means. You, know, you, you fall sick, but the hospital doesn't have enough medicine because you know, the supply of medicine is limited. Uh, the supply of medicine allowed into Gaza is limited by 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 Israel. Um, you know, your child has cancer. 
there's no chemotherapy wards in Gaza. So you have to apply for a permit with the Israeli military and intelligence to get your kid to go abroad so they can get receive treatment. And often that permit is delayed for months and months and years um, and never, never uh, is never granted. And your child dies of something completely curable and preventable. Um, there's been cases where, you know, the permit has arrived the day after someone has died as well. Like imagine the horror and, and the anger and the vengeance that, that, that drives people. Um, you know, even people who are granted permits to escape are often um, blackmailed at the exit point. We talked about the Erez crossing, that fortress at the north of Gaza. Um, oftentimes, a lot of people would be blackmailed as they're going through by Israeli intelligence officers who are trying to get them to become uh, informants and collaborators against their own people. Um, and if you refuse, you're often turned back with your sick child or, you know, your sick parent. Um, there's no drinking water in Gaza. 97% of Gaza's water is, is contaminated. Uh, there were a few wells that were bombed by the Israelis in 2014. The power plant was bombed in 2006 and hasn't been allowed to be fully repaired since then. Um, over the past several you know, massive Israeli assaults in 2006, 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021, tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. Tens of thousands. And building materials to rebuild them has been severely limited. Um, the only way actually some of the, the only way some people got to rebuild was through this insane mechanism where the UN, you would apply to the UN who would pass your personal details, your family details, the coordinates of where you wanted to live uh, to Israeli intelligence who then would approve or deny how much material you get. And that gets imported into Gaza for you to build. There's no economy because Israel controls what gets imported and exported. You're cut off from the world. Um, early on in the siege, I think around 2012, um, you know, the Guardian reported that uh, the Israeli government actually had calculated how many calories it would allow into Gaza to keep people just above starvation levels, but not more. Right? This is the siege that we're talking about. People do not understand just how depraved the siege has been. It's been almost two decades of this. I, I don't know, not only that, but from like, uh, I guess from like a, a Western or even like liberal or left perspective, I think like we like to tell ourselves that that kind of violence and oppression like um, incurs a kind of, I don't know, moral status to the people who are the victims of it instead of like imagining what you would, would like, how, how that would do, like what that would do to your brain to experience that level of fear and horror every absolutely. day. You think it would make you a better person or a worse one? I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is the, when people have been living through this for decades, you know, and, and I think a lot of the people moralizing or armchair strategizing from thousands of miles away couldn't stomach living in Gaza for, for a few days, let alone for decades. Um, and genuinely, I think there are many people, even on the left, like you said, who mean well when they say this will only make things worse for Palestinians. And I think um, it's far more comforting for a lot of us I have family in Gaza, even for myself. It's more comforting for me to feel like, okay, they're, they're still alive, right? And that's better than being bombed. Um, but I think that's because when there's no airstrikes, it's easier for us to look away. You know, I was born in Gaza, I have family there, but even for me, it's, it's easier not to have to think about the people there when they're, being, when they're not being bombed. So I think we all prefer it that way. Yeah, I, the closest thing that we could compare Gaza to is it counterfactual? It is, I guess, if uh, the Third Reich had been able to occupy the Eastern Front for 70 years, there's just nothing in modern memory that approaches this kind of treatment for this long. Uh, Americans already have such a difficulty envisioning the terror of precision airstrikes and, uh, and sanctions and just basic materials that we take for granted not being there. But that turned up past a scale that we've ever seen that people have no concept and no appreciation of it. And those of us who are watching in America, we're very lucky that our encounters with death and misery are questions of money or inconvenience or time or emotional pain that we'll never have to know what we would do if our entire family had been wiped out, that everyone we know had been killed and that hospitals didn't even have enough gauze yeah. and that 
boats coming in from Turkey to try to give you even basic supplies were shot down by the military and no one cared. Yeah, I mean, uh, just just this morning, um, uh, an aid convoy, um, aid trucks that were trying to enter from Egypt, from the only uh, crossing that Gaza has with with that that's not with Israel, it's with Egypt. Um, Israelis bombed the border crossing and told the Egyptian government that if the trucks get closer, they're going to bomb them as well. Um, one thing that stood out to me watching some of the footage um, the Hamas fighters filmed of themselves um, is that, and I, I think a lot of people don't comprehend this, as much as Israel controls every aspect of life in Gaza, most people in Gaza have never seen an Israeli, Right. It's something crazy to think about when we think about kind of dystopian, you know, future where we talk about people being warehoused or uh, ghettoized. That you could have been born. That you could have been born, Pat, like after the 2014 war, like lived under the fear of that without having never actually seen the the people doing it to you. Is yeah. Is this yeah? That is that is a sci-fi dystopia. Breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. Not not even the 2014 war will. Uh, Gaza has been under a policy of closure since 1991. Yeah. Right. The Israeli mili- the Israeli army or the Israeli government decided that anyone who wants to enter or leave Gaza uh, would needed a special permit. Right. Um, I used to visit Gaza as a child. I used to spend summers there. We, I remember my mother would spend the entire summer uh, going from uh, office to office trying to get one permit to get us in and then one permit to get us out. Right. Uh, for most people, that permit was was almost impossible to receive. Uh, and this was bef- this was a decade and a half before the siege happened, before it was tightened, and you know everything was was uh, w- the suffering was increased exponentially. So we're talking about an entire generation of people who only know Israel through uh, airstrikes, through the limitations on their physical freedom at the borders, sniper fire, and the fact that. Whether they get sick, whether they can't get a job, whether they can't go abroad to get an education, all of that is determined by some faceless bureaucrat behind a high-tech fence. Uh, and so these fighters who en- you know, entered the Israeli military bases and killed Israeli soldiers and then moved on to Israeli towns and then were interacting with Israelis um, in their homes, this genuinely was the first time they'd seen an Israeli. You know, It's absolutely mind-blowing to think about. That is astonishing. I mean, we know that the Israeli policy towards Palestinians and specifically towards Gaza has been, you know, utter dehumanization, but it, it goes both ways. Not in that the Israelis are dehumanized by someone else, but they've done it to themselves. They are portraying themselves to their captives as it's like Lovecraftian, uncaring idiot gods of death it is just one of the most astonishing things you could even imagine yeah i mean i guess the last thing i want to say about this is that like certainly over the last couple of days like if you are you know in the west you have been entreated to share how outraged your conscience is by all this violence particularly in light of the fact that for the first time ever the death toll is lopsided in the israeli direction but i guess i would just ask like uh, for, for people who are horrified by all of this, like what avenues towards non-armed conflict are left to the people of Gaza or any Palestinian at this point? Because, I mean, like, it just, like uh, all legal political avenues, like, and even if you go back like, to like, previous uh, iterations of Palestinian resistance, like the deals made by the PLO to like, uh, you know, seek a two-state solution, Mm-hmm. All, all Israel had to do was, ramp, was stop its occupation and stop its annexation of territories. They have not done that for even a second over the last 30 or 40 years. And they've done it with the complete approval of the American government and every government in the EU, minus maybe Ireland. Um, so, like, what, like, for the people who demand, like, nonviolence, like, what would you, what would you do? Like, what is left? And, and if you'd like a nonviolent solution, what can be done to, uh, like, to, to make that possible? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, the... The main criticism and the main kind of fault line between uh, between Hamas and other groups who fight Israel and between the Palestinian Authority, which is kind of the accepted Palestinian representative to the West, to the Gulf states, etc., is that the Palestinian Authority uh, conceded a lot to Israel, right? Uh, they, they, they conceded that the 
lands that Palestinians were forced out of in 1948, that that should remain Israel. And all they asked for in return was self-government or rule uh, in the occupied West Bank and Gaza and that Israel removes the settlements from there. Um, and instead, since that deal, the number of Israeli settlers has quadrupled. Um, the uh, annexation of the West Bank is now has become kind of like there's de facto annexation. Um, and even kind of like the feeble attempts at reaching out to whatever's left of, you know, international institutions to hold Israel accountable are met with uh, th this crazed kind of screeching. Like when, when, when the Palestinian Authority tried to apply to become a member of the International Criminal Court to potentially, um, you know, bring charges against Israel for war crimes, it was denounced as diplomatic terrorism. How 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 can terrorism be diplomatic, right? Um, <laughs> um, words like lawfare, uh, you know, it's there's diplomatic terrorism. There's there's lawfare. There's uh, if you if you want to boycott, then it's economic terrorism. If you march, then it's I don't know walking terrorism. I don't know, you know. In 2018, um, in Gaza, the for an entire return, year, right? the Great yeah. March of Return. Yeah, every Friday. And, yeah, the, they, they were unarmed. What happened to them? Every Friday, people would go in their thousands and their tens of thousands. They'd march to the eastern boundary. They would uh, there'd be plays, there'd be dancing, music, cookouts. Families would gather. There'd be uh, you know political speeches, uh, and people would try to get closer and closer to the fence. Because remember, for most people in Gaza, that land across the fence isn't a foreign land to them. It's where a lot of them came from, right? A lot of those. A lot of people in Gaza are refugees or the descendants of refugees who were forced out from the surrounding areas by Israeli forces and never have been allowed to return. So to them, that's their land, right? And for a year, they would march to the border or to the fence. And do you know what happened? Every single week, Israeli snipers stationed at the fence would shoot. So many people were shot in the knees that it kind of produced the phenomenon of an entire generation of amputees walking around Gaza on crutches. Um, there was a, a famous headline by the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that had a quote from an Israeli sniper who said, I took 42 knees in one day. Those Jesus were just Christ. Yeah. Those, those were just the amputations, you know, hundreds of people were killed. Tens of thousands were injured. Um, medics were attacked, including uh, famously a young volunteer medic called Razana Najjar, who was shot as she was walking with her hands up, with her medic's uniform, to reach a man who'd been injured closer to the fence. And what was the result of that? And some, by the way, and some of this was covered quite uh, extensively in the international press. But what was the global response? Week after week for an entire year, what pressure did it result in, on Israel to end the siege, to allow these people to live? There was none. And I think people who advocate for nonviolence, I mean, it would be lovely. It would be amazing if no one had to die and no one had to fight for this thing to be resolved. Um, but that's not what happens, unfortunately. The thing that I have found particularly maddening has been uh, people who have said, well, you know, good luck now. You know, you've alienated me from your cause. You've alienated yeah. everyone from your cause. <laughs> yeah. What were what were you in America going to do? The people the people who I've seen said this are like Dan Carlin, the pop history podcaster. Were you going to make a podcast so good that it, it was going to result in a two state solution? What like even if there was widespread Western sympathy, where did that bring us? Yeah, I think I think you know one thing. The last time we spoke, uh, you you mentioned something along the lines, uh, Felix, I think it was you who said that, you know, I think you think the Palestinian cause is just going to eventually become one more thing that liberals talk about without doing anything about. Um, and I remember thinking in the back of my mind, if that happens, you know, then a lot of people will be self-congratulated, will congratulate themselves on um, showing the world that Palestinians are actual humans. Uh, but my family in Gaza are still going to be under siege. Uh, no one's going to stop that. And I think Hamas, when they un decided to undertake this attack, and I, I think they are not stupid. They understand the value of, of, of kind of like how, how you're seeing public perception in the West. Um, but I think they decided that uh, it means nothing anymore. And yeah. people are too desperate. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, and, and, and if, if the reports about, you know, um, 
hundreds of civilians being killed in addition to what seemed like hundreds of soldiers as well, including high-ranking officers killed. Um, as you know, as that becomes confirmed, um, I think it's clear that Hamas decided to do that. There, there was there's a psychological element here, right? And I think Hamas decided that we need to change the rules of the game, yeah, uh, because this 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 Western sympathy is not getting us anything. Celebrities tweeting about you know free Palestine is not freeing Palestine. Yeah, it, I I think I think a lot of the uh, the negative response you see to just even the con the concept of armed resistance is that if it, the end goal of this isn't these, the ideal of like a liberal Zionist or even like a, a self-professed, you know, American pacifist uh, where it's Israel keeps existing as it does. And there is like an impoverished Palestinian rump state that gets to have a president now. Yeah. It would be the end of Israel as we know it. It would be the end of Israel as an ethnostate project if they're successful here. I mean, just to, just to jump in, one thing that I really want to emphasize because I feel this is getting lost, this is an apartheid state, right? Yes. Like, this is not, this, this, it's now become kind of accepted international human rights or, uh, community that Israel is practicing apartheid. It's become accepted amongst a lot of elected officials in the West as well, right? But they're still standing up for Israel's right to do what it's doing in Gaza. They're still not putting any kind of pressure on it to end the occupation and, or even end the apartheid regime. So, so how far is, is, is Western sympathy really going to take us? And Mohammed, another fact that, you know, in, in, whether you want to just state Israel as an apartheid state, whether you're allowed to in the media, which you're certainly not for the most part. Mm. But the fact that gets lost in all of this is that Palestinians are the majority population. Of the like, board of within the borders that Israel controls, Palestinians are the majority population, and there is no way that you can dispossess them, pe the people, the majority population of not just their political and civil rights, but their homes and lives, without engaging in genocide of some kind. Which is, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think what we're gonna what we're seeing now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, what's interesting to me, just watching kind of the the U.S. media reaction to this, is contrasting it with what I've seen from the Israeli media. And and I haven't watched enough Israeli media to make a, a major claim here, but we're seeing at least voices in the Israeli media that you'd never see in the American media, right? Um, we got an editorial in Haaretz where the headline is, Israel can't imprison 2 million Gazans without paying a cruel price. Israelis know this, right? Israelis just simply decided that the price was low enough that they were willing to pay it. Does this change things? We'll see. But it definitely does, you know, completely upend the calculus that was governing the area before that. Yeah, I have been curious to see. I mean, uh, if Israel decides that is a price that they want to pay now and in the future, and maybe if they decide to even kill the hostages, I, um, I'm curious to see if Israel rips itself apart or you know, comes together as America after 9-11 or Germany yeah. in 1937. Yeah, I, I think um, one for Israel, I think one of the one of the downsides of having repeatedly bombed Israel to the Stone Age, as the former Israeli defense minister Benny Gantz has said, who's kind of hailed as a liberal in America as well, um, is that there's not much more that you can do, Right. So what we're seeing now is what we've seen in the past, but just on a on a greater scale. But the result is the same. They're not degrading Hamas's ability to fight. I mean, Hamas today launched several hundred rockets from underground rocket silos that it has in Gaza. Israelis have not been able to stop that from happening. And what is going to happen eventually, I think, whether there is a limited ground incursion, whether there is a, uh, a partial reoccupation, whatever, at the end of the day, Hamas is still going to be there. And this time... It's going to have several dozen or hundred, several hundred hostages with it that the Israelis are going to have to negotiate over, right? Yeah. And one way or another, there's going to be massive pressure from the Israeli public to fix that situation. So we'll see where that goes. And Felix, unless you have anything more, I think we could uh, leave it there. Uh no, I, I, I think we've about covered everything that's uh, pertinent today. Uh, Mohammed, you've um, always 
provided a, just a irreplaceable uh, voice uh, on the show. Uh, and as always, it's we're we're very thankful to be able to cut through uh, the coverage that we see in America and the West at large. Uh, yeah. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Uh, there's, there's, if I could say one thing. Um, yes, please. Just, just on um, uh, kind of like the squeamishness that a lot of people have when it comes to kind of the bombing of Gaza, a lot of people say, well, you know, um, how do you know those are Hamas or those, are, you know, these are civilians, they're separate from Hamas. Um, and then you get a lot of re- people replying saying, well, they support Hamas or they, they elected them. Um, and it is true that a lot of Palestinians support Hamas and they support Hamas for one simple reason, because Hamas fights Israel. You remove Hamas and people will support whoever's left that's fighting Israel. And now it's not going to change until Palestinians don't have a reason to fight Israel, until the occupation is dismantled, until apartheid is ended and people are allowed to live in freedom and equality. And I think genuinely that is not a very complex point to understand. But I think a lot of people kind of bend over backwards and twist themselves in knots to not understand that. Um, and, uh, and just related to that, I think that the solution to this conflict is simple. People can live together in peace if there is justice and equality between them. And I don't think that's impossible to have. Mohammed, uh, thank you for your time joining us today. Um, and obviously, we extend all of our thoughts to you and your family right now as well. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Uh, if I could say that um, if anyone wants more information with, at AJ+, we have uh, some really good coverage and contextual videos about what's been happening past Palestine over the last few years. Um, so we have a playlist if you guys want to share that. Uh, we will link to that as well as uh, Seamus's piece. Uh, awesome. Well. Thank you all guys right. so much. Uh, all right. Thank you. All right. Till next time. Bye.